I'm John Gardiner, and you're listening to the Beginner's Guide to Model Railroading. Model railroading is fun, you just have to know how to do it. In this episode, I will finally be telling you how to start construction on your model railroad by talking about bench work. episodes, it's finally time for us to actually start building things, and to do that, we must create a surface upon which we can place our models. Benchwork is one of the most important parts of a model railroad as it supports your layout. Parts include the support system, frame, sub-roadbed, and layout surface. The support system is very simple, usually either legs or some sort of wall mount. They should be able to support the railroad, the scenery, and part of your weight, but shouldn't necessarily be overbuilt as to preclude under layout storage and access. The frame sits on top of the legs and is basically what all train-related parts are in some way affixed to. The frame is best visualized as a form of stud wall on its side sans sheetrock. The outside of the frame is usually attached to fascia, which is a nice presentation surface equivalent in function to a picture frame, thereby hiding the dimensional lumber and layout uglies behind it. The sub-roadbed is what you lay the track on. Normally, this is elevated above the frame surface in order to allow you to build below-grade scenery, such as gullies and rivers. There are many different types of sub-roadbed, including spline, cookie cutter, foam risers, sheet plywood, and others. The layout surface is what you build the scenery on. Many beginners choose sheet plywood, but it's much more advisable to choose something more dynamic. All of these will be explained in far greater detail in a moment. 
To start off with, many beginners aim for a simple and easy benchwork system, and this has created several layout sizing niches in hobby lore, the most common being the 5x9-foot ping-pong table, the 4x8-foot sheet of plywood, and the 30x80-inch hollow core door. These tables can be very simple to put together, but they are often overly expensive and limiting. Nowadays, nearly all modelers opt to build their own layout substructure de novo, as this allows you to build a layout of any size you want and build it to fit your space. Some modelers opt to use prefabricated tables or modules, either specifically designed for model railroading or from various furniture stores, but this is much more the exception than the norm for the above reasons. As a beginner, if you want to start with a quick getting-your-feet-wet layout, I would think it's okay to use a prefabricated table. But if you're looking for a layout that you can expand and reuse as you develop in the hobby, it's probably a lot wiser to spend an extra month or two building your own benchwork. Now, let's dive into specifics. For supporting your layout, there are two routes that you can go. The most common ways to support a layout are by building it on legs or attaching it to a wall shelf system. The layout support system can be as simple as a 4x4-inch post that runs straight to the ground at the desired layout height, but it's usually better to make things more elaborate. Legs have the advantage that you can make the layout as deep as you want and can move it wherever in the room you might need to. However, making legs can be a lot of extra work, especially for a large layout, and may not be as stable, being liable to wobble or shifting when the layout is bumped into. Shelf layouts, on the other hand, can be much easier to assemble. All you need to do is buy a track shelving system from a hardware store, affix it to wall studs, put on the shelf brackets, and glue or screw the layout frame to the brackets. This usually saves time and allows for lots of under layout space for storage. However, this does require the alteration of walls, which some renters may not be comfortable with, and necessitates that the layout be fixed in place in the room, so moving it around is very difficult. Additionally, stronger and more stable shelf tracks can be expensive. While the shelf proportions must always be narrow, under two or so feet, an occasional leg out away from the wall does allow you to build deeper scenes, such as with a peninsula. Shelf brackets are usually easy to set up, so we'll ignore them for now and give you some good practices for building legs. Most modelers end up building H-like double-leg structures, akin to what you find on some folding tables. Bracing legs together in pairs greatly increases stability. Legs should also have a leveling device at the bottom. Most often, this can be done with a simple T-nut, which is basically a threaded tube. Simply turn your leg upside down, drill a great big hole in the bottom, and smash the T-nut down the hole with a hammer, and glue it in place. Then, thread a bolt into the T-nut, and, by twisting the bolt, your leg can magically get longer or shorter to compensate for slightly uneven floors. Bolt, but do not glue legs to the layout surface so that they can be removed if needed for transport, storing the layout, or swapping out the new legs if, say, you desired a new layout height. It's usually a good idea to build cross-leg braces, done with smaller 1x2s, that make X's between the H-leg apparati, or triangles up to a nearby portion of the layout frame. This further increases rigidity, but also may be unnecessary on smaller, lighter layouts. Finally, a growing trend in recent years is to mount your layout on casters. This allows you to easily swing it around the room to access an otherwise hard-to-reach area. This is especially useful for layouts in tight spaces or for smaller sectional layouts. I've personally combined the leveling and caster ideas by getting casters that are mounted on threaded bolts, allowing me to both move the layout about and re-level it when it's at its new location. 
However, casters are not always necessary, so don't feel obligated to build them into the system. Dragging the layout along the floor occasionally is fine, too. Leg design is an excellent time to bring up height considerations. There's a lot of theory to layout height, and it gets even more complicated with double-deck layouts. What you basically need to know as a beginner are these facts. The closer to eye level you get, the better a layout looks. It helps to hide unrealistic flaws in the layout with a realistic perspective, and makes the trains look heftier and more powerful. Ideal layout heights are usually somewhere between waist and shoulder level for layout builders. The higher the layout, the easier it will be to work underneath it for wiring, and the more storage space you will have. However, if you're intending to build a layout to be viewed by shorter people, you should obviously make it lower, or you can use step stools or elevated platforms around the layout. Try as hard as you can to never go below waist level. One final nifty trick, don't forget that legs can be built with storage in mind. Especially on smaller layouts and family rooms, most people just build model railroads directly on top of bookshelves for support. Even if you build your own legs, you can always use them to, for example, add shelving. The frame of the layout is the most expansive component of benchwork, and directly supports everything that you will build subsequently. While there are some more advanced tactics, like open grid or L-girder systems, there are really only two that you need to know as beginners. Closed grids and solid pieces. Closed grids are, as I said earlier, basically a stud wall sans sheetrock on its side. Imagine a square box the desired size of the layout, then add a bunch of cross pieces in one direction running across the middle every 16 inches or so. To some of these cross pieces are bolted the tops of your legs. Use this and your layout track plan to make a benchwork plan for your layout. For some smaller beginner layouts, especially in smaller scales, solid hunks of material are often used as a very quick and dirty layout frame, most popularly, as aforementioned, the 30 by 80 inch hollow core doors in N scale. It is literally a great big rectangular door that you can plop down on sawhorses and immediately begin laying track. These are good for beginner projects, but keep in mind they can later be somewhat unwieldy and will not allow you to customize your layout shape. One thing that often happens when building benchwork is that you bring a bunch of dimensional lumber through a door and permanently attach them into larger pieces such that they cannot exit the door again without being demolished. A growing movement is to build layouts in modular segments. Basically, instead of building, for example, a great big closed grid box that's 3 feet wide and 16 feet long, you can build two closed grids, each 8 feet long, and then bolt them together. Unlike truly modular layouts, these don't have to have standardized interfaces, which allows you to maintain the freedom of building whatever you wish. Thus, these are sometimes more appropriately called dominoes instead of true modules. Even if you have no intention of regularly separating your layout pieces, you can still make your benchwork dominoed and scenic over the module gaps such that you would never need to know the difference. All you have to do is move or rearrange your layout once for you to recover on your investment. Some modelers have been known to completely reuse entire layout pieces when starting a new layout by building off of old dominoes. This is also a nifty idea for expansion, because you can split your dominoes apart and add new or different pieces in between, or just replace the dominoes entirely. Unlike modules with a true standard, the only rule for domino size and architecture is that they should all be small enough to fit through a doorway and around the tightest corner of your house. Now, when it comes to giving the layout a surface, the beginner's first inclination is to nail a sheet of plywood to the frame, making it look exactly like a very large homemade table. 
However, this is not necessary nor often practiced for several reasons. Firstly, if you think about it, this is wasteful. The only things that need a solid base are the track and town areas. Everything in between, which is most often scenery, can be made of much more flexible, lightweight, and cheap materials. Thus, by only using plywood where it's needed, you can make a single sheet of plywood stretch much farther and get more bang for your buck. Another consideration is elevation. If you have a universal, inviolable layout bottom, you can go no lower than that. If you're looking for a road underpass, a river, or any scenic feature below track level, you won't be able to make it with a sheet plywood base. For simple beginner layouts, however, sheet plywood does have one very big advantage. It allows you to change your track as much as you want with minimal effort, because 100% of the layout surface can have track placed upon it. All you need to do is tear up the track from one place and put it down in its new arrangement. So how do we reconcile these systems? An easy compromise is to use sheet foam insulation board as a layout surface. You can then lay your track however you want, test it out in all of the different arrangements that you have in mind, but when you've settled on a final design, you can glue the track in place and then cut away the excess foam with a knife or a hot wire cutter very easily, thereby allowing below-grade scenery. This is an ideal choice for beginners because it allows you to maintain a certain level of indecision during the initial stages of construction. What most experienced modelers do, though, is to leave the layout a mostly open grid and add sheet plywood or sheet foam in places where they know they will be having a village or town. Later, during scenery, they cover the gaps in the rest of the layout with their preferred method of landforming. This method may sound somewhat complicated, but it's versatile and saves a ton of money, especially on larger layouts. This method, however, does require a thorough and complete track plan up front and adds a lot of effort to making changes, which is why I'm not necessarily espousing this for beginners whose interests are usually more volatile. Roadbed is what the track sits on, usually cork and gives a prototypical ballast drainage profile. Subroadbed is the portion of the benchwork that actually supports the roadbed. This somewhat blends into the layout surface segment, but there are separate theories to subroadbed science. First, as with layout surfaces, there are two main types of materials used for subroadbed, plywood pieces and flexible foam risers. As always, there are more complicated methodologies out there, such as spline roadbed, but they are all well beyond the scope of beginnerhood. What many experienced modelers do is to cut out a strip of plywood that is slightly wider than the track it will support and that mirrors the curves that the piece of track should take. If there are two tracks together, it is twice as wide, and so on. In large areas like city scenes and yards, this is usually simplified with an expansive rectangle of plywood. These pieces of plywood are then spliced together and attached to the layout frame at the cross pieces with risers. Think like the concrete pylons that hold up skyways or highway junctions, just made of wood and model size. Because the modeler is cutting out a bunch of odd shapes from a 4x8-foot sheet of plywood, this is therefore nicknamed the cookie-cutter method of subroadbed. This method has several advantages and disadvantages. First, and most obviously, this solves the problem aforementioned of having below-grade scenery. By having only what is necessary to support the track, and by being able to raise the sub-roadbed above the layout frame quite substantially with little effort, you can make your below-grade scenery as deep as you want. The sky's the limit. Well, more like, the floor's the limit. And that's actually a true statement. Some modelers like dramatic canyon scenes and build scenery all the way to the floor. 
This method also produces robust sub-roadbed that can make grades very easy to work with. All you have to do is calculate how high the track should be at each riser, and the plywood, because it's so stiff, does all of the bending for you to make the grade transitions smooth. However, this is also very heavy on effort. Think of all of that cutting. It is also somewhat inflexible. If you need to change your track plan at all, you'll have to go and cut more plywood, which can be a pain. The other major method of making sub-roadbed is to use foam risers. Woodland Scenics sells very nifty foam risers, which are basically various flexible, curvable, wedge-shaped foam pieces in sets of 1, 2, 3, and 4% inclines. These are insanely cheap and easy ways to add elevation to your trains. In part because the risers also have flat planes that can hold elevation in addition to the wedges that raise and lower elevation, I recommend these to beginners for their great simplicity. The one thing I caution against is that their use can sometimes lead to vertical kinks, so you might want to go over the finely glued pieces with a sanding block to smooth things over a bit before you start laying track. Now, a very important step. Before you start building benchwork, you have to make a blueprint. Start with the track plan that you made a few episodes ago. Examine how the track fits into your room and the shape of the layout board and surface. Place a piece of grid paper of the same scale over the track plan and trace out the shape of the underlying layout onto the new sheet, and then photocopy this multiple times. Alternatively, if you're just using a software copy and paste, you know what I mean. Examine the layout shape and see if you can break it down into multiple sections or dominoes. Again, not every layout has to be modular, but it is highly advantageous to build your layout in sections. To each domino, see if you can design a grid or prison bar-like design with cross pieces about 16 to 20 inches apart, and put legs every 4 to 6 feet. Draw up a design for the legs facing sideways as opposed to the vertical plan of the benchwork grid. Once you have your blueprint, label each length and don't forget to account for the width and depth of the wood. For example, say we are building a box that is 28 inches square and made of 1x3s. Due to the compression process used in drying wood, 1x3s have an actual dimension of 2.25 by 0.75 inches. So in our box of 28 inches square, the wood must overlap on the edges. Thus, the two longer sides will be a true 28 inches, but the other two lengths of wood will actually be 26.5 inches, because they both sit inside of the 28-inch pieces, and each 28-inch piece has a width of 0.75 inches, which, multiplied by 2, is 1.5, which, subtracted by 28, is 26.5. Then, tally up all of the pieces of each wood type, both lumber dimensions and cut length, Take this list and arrange the pieces together to sum up to 8 or 10 foot lengths, which are the most common lengths that dimensional lumber is sold in. The way that I usually do this is to write down every length of lumber that my blueprint calls for in decreasing size, including duplicates. Then I start with a full-sized length of dimensional lumber and start subtracting from it the largest lengths of wood that I need on down. For example, say I will be buying a 10 foot piece of lumber, which is 120 inches. Looking down at my list, the longest piece of wood that I need is 88 inches, which gives me 32 inches remaining. Going back to the list, the next size piece of lumber that I need under 32 inches is 20, which will give me 12 inches remaining. According to my list, the final length of wood that I could squeeze from this piece would be 8 inches. You should use these calculations to make cutting maps. 
In this example, I would set aside one 10-foot length of lumber to be cut into lengths of 88, 32, 20, and 8 inches, with 4 inches left over as a scrap piece. Repeat this until all of the lengths of lumber that you need for your benchwork have been accounted for, and this method will give you the number of pieces of lumber you should buy, as well as the most efficient way to cut them. Once you have all of this planning out of the way, you can count up the number of lengths of wood of each dimension that you need, go to the lumberyard, and acquire them. As aforementioned in other episodes, I usually get all of my lumber cut at this stage. Even if you don't intend to do this, however, always have a complete and comprehensively annotated benchwork plan prior to construction, as, if done well, this will allow you to very rapidly put the benchwork of a small layout together in a single weekend's worth of effort. Now that you know all of the parts and methods of building benchwork, here are some tips for building and planning it. First off, don't overbuild. For many model railroads, you can make everything that you need from 1x3s or smaller. Also, don't be afraid to use math. While very few of us enjoy math, including myself, the scientist, you aren't in the middle of a timed exam, so you can take your time to slowly work through the numbers and make sure that they are right. As I mentioned above, lumber dimensions aren't real. 1x3s aren't actually 1x3, they are 25 by 075 inches. When you're planning your benchwork, you can look up your chosen lumber dimensions online and use their sizings. When you're cutting your pieces of wood, keep hold of all the scraps, especially those longer than a foot, as they can come in handy later for small projects if you need to redo something. Now that you have a complete idea of how to design benchwork, we need to get into the minutia of actually constructing it. As I mentioned in the last episode, these are the types of woodworking tools you will need. Wood glue, a saw, a drill with drill bits, screws, a tape measure, and probably a hammer and pliers or a wrench. I will now explain the nuances of each. Contrary to popular belief, screws and nails don't actually hold the wood together. The vast majority of the strength of benchwork comes from the wood glue, and you should never ever rely on screws or nails alone. In fact, since I've had so much pushback on this idea, you can test the theory for yourself at home. Take four pieces of wood and screw two together without glue, then glue the other two together without screws, just making sure that the glued-only pieces are adequately clamped together during the drying period. Come back the next morning and try to pry the pieces apart. The glue-only pieces should be very difficult to part, and will act like a normally made wood joint. The screw-only pieces, however, will splinter around the intrusions or will bend the screws. Now, even if this isn't true, it's still a lot easier to bend the screw-only wood, which is bad for model railroading because benchwork is supposed to be as rigid and stable as possible to prevent cracking of the layout surface. Thus, you should always use wood glue on every single joint in benchwork, except, of course, those that are meant to come apart. In order to apply wood glue, first test fit the two pieces together and drill any necessary pilot holes for your screw. Then apply a light bead of wood glue down the length of the joint before screwing or nailing the pieces together. Make sure not to use too much wood glue, as it will spooge out the joints and get everything very messy. Keep in mind that, eponymously, wood glue works best on wood-to-wood -wood joints. If you need to affix wood to something else, like metal, a different type of glue will be required. If you plan all of your lumber cuts ahead of time, as do I, you can have all of your lumber cut at the lumberyard, usually for a small fee of 25 cents per cut or so. I much prefer making the cuts at the site of purchase because, in addition to making assembly at home much faster, it usually also makes it a lot easier to fit the lumber into my car.
However, the best laid plans of mice and men often go awry, so you will usually need something to make the occasional cut at home if necessary. I used to have a small handsaw for this purpose, but I realized something was going very wrong when it took me several evenings to make a single cut of wood. Thus, I recently graduated to a cheap $50 handheld reciprocating or jigsaw, and I couldn't be happier. If you're interested in making all of the wood cuts yourself away from the lumberyard, it might be wise to invest in a more expensive circular saw, which makes straighter cuts. Table saws, though, I would say are not necessary for beginners. A handheld version would be fine. A drill is where you should spend the most of your money, as it will be a tool that you will use extensively throughout many different stages of the hobby. I vastly prefer right-angle drills to the normal varieties, specifically the Craftsman 9-17562 Nextech 12-volt right-angle impact driver, as its shallow drilling dimensions allow it to fit in many tight spaces, a quality which is highly advantageous for model railroading. I also highly recommend cordless drills, as this reduces the likelihood of cord tangling and can make it much easier to carry around your shop. If you don't want to be caught with a dead drill, however, make sure that you buy an extra battery so that one may charge while the other is being used. Obviously, one must, with a drill, purchase drill bits. These come in many different types, but the ones that you will make most use of are auger bits and screwdriver bits. Auger bits are the spiraling ones used to core out a hole, and screwdriver bits are, obviously, those that interface with screws. One drill bit set of each type should be all that you need for a beginner's project. But keep in mind, the more different types and sizes of drill bits you have, the more versatile your drill will become. Another type of drill bit is the boring bit, which looks like flat paddles. These are used to make very large diameter holes, such as holes that can be used for recessed buttons or to make conduits in your benchwork through which you can thread wiring or control cables to keep things nice and organized. When it comes to attaching pieces of wood to each other, I generally prefer screws to nails, for, if nothing else, they allow you to undo your mistakes. Even with wood glue, it is much easier to pry apart two pieces of wood if the screws have been removed than it would be if you were also fighting against nails. When choosing screws, make sure that they're wood screws and that they are the appropriate length for whatever you are fastening. Screws that are too short obviously won't connect the pieces, whereas screws that are too long will pop out the other side and be sharp hazards around your layout. When placing a screw, first mark where you want it to be and drill a pilot hole with an auger bit of a size slightly smaller than the diameter of the screw. This is usually best done before adding the wood glue so that the sawdust doesn't get trapped in the glue making a mess. Then, after drilling the pilot hole and applying the glue, you can drill in the screw. Make sure the head of the screw is flush with the surface of the wood, but don't go any deeper or the wood may warp or split. If the wood is starting to split, immediately take the screw back out and then try again very slowly. Sometimes a split can be stabilized by a screw going crosswise around the offending screw, but this is a last resort. Normally, if you've drilled a large enough pilot hole correctly, no splitting should occur. If you're having serial problems with wood splitting, another solution is to buy higher quality wood with a less prominent grain. Finally, if the screw starts to strip, take it back out immediately and throw it away before the head is too worn away. Stripping can occur if you're not putting enough pressure behind the drill, but more often than not, it means that the screw is encountering too much friction on the way down, such as from a knot in the wood or a pilot hole that is too small.
A retractable tape measure is something good to have when measuring the dimensions of your room and making cuts on wood. However, it's still useful even if you have all of your wood cut at the lumberyard. You can use a tape measure to check the lengths of all your pieces and make sure they match your plan, or you can use them to check your progress along the way and make sure that systematic errors aren't piling up. Though, in the simplest benchwork systems, you won't need a hammer or pliers, they are nonetheless very useful tools to have. If you need to undo two errantly joined pieces or flatten an imperfection, a hammer will do quite nicely. The pliers will become especially useful later in wiring and track laying, so you may as well get them now. I also want to take a moment here to discuss safety. Whenever you are working with power tools or sharp objects, treat them with reverence. Having a clean and well-lit workshop will do a lot for avoiding many casualties. As best you can, keep your hands clear of the business end of the tools. Never work with dull blades or bits, don't inhale sawdust, and always wear eye protection. Most of this should be very self-explanatory common sense. If it's not, then, as a social Darwinian, I lovingly invite you to remove your reproductive capacity from the gene pool with a catastrophic accident. Before I close this episode, I want to take a moment to read a very nice email I got from a new listener. As you may recall, I was recently twice invited on the So You Want to Ride a Motorcycle podcast by Chris Geis to be interviewed about my new rider experience. I'm also very proud to be his first returning guest. Paul, a listener of Chris's show, started listening to this podcast after hearing about it in my interview and sent me this lovely note. John, just found out about your podcast while listening to you as a guest on Chris's podcast, So You Want to Ride a Motorcycle. I started riding motorcycles about three years ago at age 51, and listened to several of the motorcycle podcasts. I have been a model railroader for many years, started but never finished a few layouts because life got in the way. I have almost listened to all of your episodes during my commute to work this week. I would like to say, good job. I appreciate the time you spend doing research to support your statements. It must come natural to you for being a scientist. I model a fictitious pike called Cedar Cove in HO scale, in a 5 by 16 foot space as a division of the Southern Railway, circa 1964 or so. I have dabbled in G, ON30, and N over the years, but I come back to HO. I take my modeling spells in between my many, read too many, other hobbies. I just converted to DCC this past Christmas holiday using an Arduino Carrots SP with JMRI. Did I say one of my other hobbies is electronics? Yes, I'm modern old school with vacuum tube amplifiers and digital processors. Anyway, keep up the good work. I'm looking forward to hearing more of your great podcasts. I may be old, but not too old to learn more. Paul. Thank you so much, Paul, for your kind comments. I, as well, have completed too few layouts in my time. We work so that we can buy trains, but we can't play with our trains because we work. It's a vicious cycle. I'm very glad that you appreciate the research I put into this. Given that so many other podcasts are ad-libbed or unscripted because it's much, much easier to produce a podcast that way, it makes me proud that you like the effort that I put into researching and refining each episode's script. Also, as I recently discovered while meeting up with Chris Geis in person at Gettysburg, I am also very schizophrenic in my blatherings, so the script helps me to keep to relevant subjects. 
You are also probably right that most of this comes from my scientific proclivities, but I would like to think that all people are capable of and ought to act logically, as my own experience has shown this to be largely true. I always did love the Southern Railway as a kid, though largely only for their beautifully painted steam locomotives. I also laud you for choosing to convert to DCC, but I am thoroughly impressed that you're using Arduinos and JMRI, as that's going straight from 0 to 100. I guess it pays to have other related hobbies and experience as well. I bid you luck, sir, in your endeavors. Thank you again, Paul, for listening. I hope that, with this episode, I have given every beginner the knowledge they need to successfully plan and build benchwork. Model railroading is a very wide and multifaceted hobby, but to successfully build a pike, you have to be a jack and master of all trades. If you have a question or comment, you are invited to visit the Facebook page, donate to my Patreon, and visit the website at www.bgtmrring.org. If you like the show, please give me a good review on iTunes and subscribe to the podcast feed. If you did not like the show, do not say anything and contemplate the thought crime that you have committed. And now, your reward for listening through my closing spiel, your modeler's vocabulary word for this episode is... Indian Valley Railroad. Noun. An imaginary railroad. The quintessence of perfection. Quote, at the end of the rainbow, unquote. Possibly, but not likely, named for one of the several real-life Indian Valley Railroads. Thank you so much for listening, and happy modeling!